in, in preaching lessons, we are usually told that a preacher should never apologize, and I agree with that. But I must begin not so much with an apology, but a, a sort of an apologetic confession as we consider God's word this evening. The confession is that I'm not the biggest fan of Christmas for various reasons, perhaps some more uh, spiritual and others less so. But before you go and accuse me of being some kind of modern or real-life Ebenezer Scrooge ruining the, 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 the joy of the season, let me explain why. One of the reasons why I find the, the whole Christmas season as we enjoy it in 21st century Western culture so off-putting. There are other reasons, but those are uh, not uh, important at this time. I find the whole Christmas season uh, off-putting as a Christian because year after year I'm struck by this contradiction, this, um, this just juxtaposition between uh, different messages that is confusing. And I wonder if you, like me, look at these things in the Christmas season and, and find it um, off-putting, at least paradoxical. Uh, if you find it, like me, uh, weird. Let me explain a few of them. You have Christmas as a, a message of uh, Christianity. But then, at the same time, Christmas has this cardinal-like mentality. You have the, the history and the, the image of humility in a stable, contrasted with the wealth and indulgence uh, of giving gifts and of lavish feasts uh, around the dinner table. You have the quietness, as we've sung, of, the, of, the, of the, that nativity scene around the manger with the, the, the sheer busyness of the Christmas season in the high streets and in, the, in shopping centers, the frenzy around it. You have the, the seriousness of the incarnation, of the message, the glorious message of the incarnation with the the silliness of the a folly attitude, a, 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 a party and kind of character and spirit. You have the lights, the blinking lights juxtaposed with a, with a single star in, uh, in the images. You have the image of the ox and the donkey uh, uh, around the manger. And we'll talk a little bit about how these things are really not as biblical as we sometimes think, but you have that, and then you have Rudolph the red-rosed uh, reindeer. You have uh, the, the image of a, of a baby in a, in a manger, and you have Santa Claus. You have stars, and you have uh, reindeers flying. It's, it's just confusing, all of this. You have Joseph and Mary around the, the manger, but right beside it, you have the elves from the North Pole. And it's a challenge in this Christmas season to focus. 
And I, I honestly think, brothers and sisters and friends, I honestly think that this is a, a scheme from the evil one to distract us, to distract us from the real reason uh, of the coming of our Lord. Whether it is the, the, the folly and, and, and merrymaking of, of secular Xmas, because they no longer call it Christmas, right? Yet whether it is that or the warm and fuzzy, cuddly feelings that, uh, of, the, of the Advent nativity scene, all of it, on one side and the other, I would argue that it's designed by the enemy of our souls to distract us from considering what really matters when we think about the coming of our Lord, when we think about the Advent, the first coming of our Lord. It's, it's deliberately designed to div divert our attention, to shift our attention away from the central issues of the history of the, of the coming of our Lord. So what I propose to you this evening is to stop, look beyond the, the manger, look beyond the nativity scenes as they are conveyed in the, in the, in the, in the minds uh, uh, of the world, to stop and look beyond the Christmas lights and the feasts and find the real reason why Christmas matters. To look at the coming of our Lord through the lens of what our Lord came to accomplish in this world. It wasn't just the coming of our Lord to be born in a manger, to be born in the cradle. The story of Christmas begins on, in the cradle but le finishes on a cross. It's a story from a cradle to a cross, from Christmas to Easter, if you want to call it that way. And I want us to consider this and to help us in this uh, journey of sorts from cradle to cross, I think the most fitting passage is Philippians. It's not a, a typical Christmas passage, Philippians chapter 2, but it is a passage that encompasses in, in a very uh, short, uh, in, in, in very few verses, the history, the mission of our Lord in his coming to this world. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 5 to verse 11. <clears throat> Let me read it for us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant in coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I hope this passage will give us a glimpse into the, into the real, as they say, reason for the season. And the, the, the image that came on my mind as I considered this passage, uh, I had it on my heart to preach from it uh, this, this evening, 
the image that came on my mind might seem a little bit irreverent, but I think uh, will convey something that will help us to understand it. I thought about that uh, dancing game uh, that was, uh, at least we see it in movies. I don't think I've ever seen it being played in real life, but uh, Limbo. Does anyone know what Limbo is? That, that game where people uh, go as low as possible and, and try to cross through a, through a, through a barrier, through a, a, a specific height. And the question is always, how low can you go? That's the goal of the game, is to go as low as possible. And that's the question, and I know it sounds slightly irreverent, but that's the question we, we should ask in the, in the Christmas season. How low can you go? Because when we consider the coming of our Lord Jesus, we need to realize that his coming was a humiliation, was him humbling himself. It was the greatest act of humility that was ever seen in humanity. And most people aren't aware of this, that Christmas is a, and the coming of our Lord in the manner that he came is God, the Son, humiliating himself, humbling himself. And you may ask, how low did Christ go? And that's the question that I want us to see as we consider Philippians chapter 2. How low did Christ go in this mission to come and save sinners like us? And we'll see it in three scenes. As I said, we'll look first at his incarnation, the scene of the cradle. We'll then look at his life of obedience from the cradle to the cross. And then we'll look finally at the cross. So firstly, the first scene uh, of Christ's humiliation is the cradle. When we think of Christmas, again, we think of the, of the, of the manger. We think of, the, uh, of the, the ox and the donkey there. And, and there's this scene of inconsistent as it is because the nativity happened in Middle East, in the Middle East, in, a harid, in an arid climate, inconsistent as it is. We, we imagine this uh, uh, field full, uh, filled with white, uh, pure snow. This idyllic Im image of a serene night. We envision Mary, gentle, and uh, a protective Joseph. We, we imagine a peaceful baby Jesus. But have you paused to consider beyond those elements, some of them very inconsistent with reality, have you paused to consider uh, what that represents? Philippians tells us what that represents. He says that Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, did not consider it being in the form of God a thing to be grasped. That is what, what the, the, the language there means. He did not consider it robbery, he did not consider it something to be laid hold of, to be in the form of God. Made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a bondservant, and came in the likeness of man. This tells us, first and foremost, that at that scene in the birth of, uh, of our Lord, that's not the beginning of the story, is it? It casts our mind back. It tells us that, exi that there exists a, a, a prehistory. And again, here I'm using the term story, not as a fictional entertainment value kind of term. I'm telling you that the, it's not the beginning of, uh, of the episode. It, there is 
something more that has happened. There is more to this story than just a child being born. Because the one uh, laying there in swaddling cloths, as the, the, uh, the, the gospel writer tells us, he is not just another baby, is he? He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who, was, uh, who is God. He is the, the one who was filled with glory from eternity past. And he comes and takes on the form of man. He, he, he didn't consider it something to be grasped, but instead he makes a choice. A choice to leave heaven, to leave the, the heavenly palaces, and to come to this earthly slum filled with sin. He was born in a humble stable. He was laid, at least initially, in a manger, a feeding trough. I struggle even to, brother, I honestly struggle even to try and, and illustrate this. How do you illustrate the infinitely glorious God, the creator of heavens and earth, becoming a man? I thought maybe I, I can illustrate it by saying that it's kind of like us making a choice to become an ant, to become a vermin. But even then, that illustration falls so very short. Because we are not infinitely glorious as God is infinitely glorious. And an ant is not infinitely vile as we are infinitely vile. Even then it falls utterly short that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, would contract, as, as we just sung, to a span. That the king of glory would lie there as a defenseless babe. That is an act of humiliation. It's not just about the birth of a baby, the story of Christmas, the, the meaning of Christmas. It's about the birth of a hope. It's about the birth of salvation. And to fully grasp this, we, again, we, we need to cast our minds back because the, the story of Christmas, the, the coming of the Lord, is not the beginning. We cast our mind back to the beginning of humanity. This time not in eternity past, but this time in, at the beginning. Year one, if you want to call it. At the right beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when God created uh, uh, heavens and the earth, and he created the Garden of Eden, and he created Adam, and out of Adam, uh, he created Eve, and he, he created them in his image and likeness, perfect in every regard, with everything they could have ever desired or needed for a fulfilled life, not least the fact that they had a perfect relationship with God in the garden and yet because of sin because of their disobedience a chasm was opened because they consumed the fruit of the forbidden tree they separated they created a barrier between humanity and God bringing about pain suffering and death but even in the midst of this moment of terrible despair, in the midst of God pronouncing judgment upon the serpent and pronouncing the consequences of the, of the sin uh, upon man and, and the woman, upon Adam and Eve, God promises 
something. He says that there will be indeed enmity between the woman and the serpent, but that the seed, the offspring of the woman, would come and crush the serpent's head. But there is another small little promise there, isn't there, that so often gets uh, uh, overlooked, but that the serpent would sting, would bruise the seed of the woman's heel. So again, you, we already right there at the beginning see that the coming of the seed has something more than just a cradle, has something more than just the aspect of coming. There is the coming to defeat the serpent, but there is also a, uh, an aspect of some kind of uh, suffering involved in it. And you ask why? Why was it necessary to be like this? Why couldn't God just forget about the sin, just blot it out? Why couldn't God just uh, uh, forgive? Why was it necessary for, to go to these extreme lengths to forgive sin, to forgive and to mend, the, to bridge that gap created by, by sin? Well, because sin is not just a one-time mistake, is it? Sin is not just the one thing that we do and, and, and we've done it. Sin is something that, that is much more uh, universal and much more... Uh, it pervades our all. It's not so much that we become sinners because we sinned. We are sinners and that's why we sin. So we took something more, something that, uh, that would change the nature, something that would uh, mend and the, the terrible consequences of sin in the life of men, that would transform, that would recreate men. And also sin uh, being such a, a devious, vile thing, God is not simply able to forgive because he is just, he is perfect, he is holy. So God in his immense love, in his abounding mercy, in his infinite wisdom, he made a way. And the way was through his son. He did not abandon us in the hopelessness of our situation. He did not leave us with, 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 in this state, but he sends his son God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, born uh, as uh, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. Not only to come into this world, but to live a sinless life, to have a life of perfect obedience. And that's our second scene, as we consider the, the pathway from cradle to the cross. It's a path of service, a path of obedience, and a path of humility. How low did Jesus go, again I ask? Well, Philippians tells us, doesn't it? It wasn't just that he, he made himself of no reputation, taking uh, the form of men, but he took the form of a bondservant, of a slave. That's the word there. He took the form of a slave. How low did he go? The king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who was uh, cared for and, and, and attended by angels in heaven, by thousands upon thousands of angels in heaven. The one who was robed in glory, the one who lived in the heavenly palaces. He takes on the form of a servant. He abandons all those he uh, heavenly glories and heavenly prerogatives 
And he, he comes, not as a king, but as a slave, as a servant. And here, don't be fooled by the form, by the, the language there of taking a form, as if it's just, okay, it was just in, uh, in principle. It was just an image. It wasn't really a servant. No, he was a real servant. That's not the, the way that the language there is. That's not what the, the language there is meant to convey to us. He took the form means that he was a true servant. And isn't that what we see in his life? A life of total obedience. A life of complete obedience to the will of God. Perhaps the best place where we see this represented is, is rec recorded for us in John. As this king of glory. As this uh, incarnate deity. He unrobes himself in the presence of his disciples. He takes a basin and he washes these disciples' feet. Something that was only to be done by slaves, by servants. A slave, a servant in the first century in, Roman, in the Roman Empire was someone who had no possessions of his own, was someone who had no uh, riches uh, to his name. And isn't that what we see with our Lord Jesus? I could go on and on here, but I'll just say this. When he wanted to enter into Jerusalem, he had to borrow the, the donkey. When he wanted to have a meal, the last supper with his disciples, he borrowed the room. He had nothing to his name. He was a true servant. Not just in, in his human uh, practice, but he was a servant in his uh, ministry. He came to serve and not to be served. He came to give and not to be given. And not only that, in his life we see his humility. How low can he go? We see his humility in his obedience. His obedience even unto death. And that's the third scene from the cradle to the cross. It's the cross. The ultimate humility, the ultimate low point in his life. Obedience to death, the, the giver of life dying. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death of the cross. And here again, kind of like in the first point, how do you express this in a way that we understand? How do you express the the humiliation of the giver of life dying upon that cross cross cursed is he who dies upon the tree the Roman uh, lawyer orator Cicero he once wrote that uh, the cross should be far from the body and the thoughts and the eyes and the ears of a Roman citizen even for the world the cross represented a, a curse Something defile, something that is, is no Roman citizen in the days of the Roman Empire would ever be subjected, no matter how vile his crimes were, would never be subjected to die on the cross to show how vile it was. And yet, Jesus, the King of Kings, he chose to. He willingly went into this ignominious death. It wasn't because he was powerless. It wasn't because he was uh, defenseless. It wasn't because he, 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 he had no way of, out of it. He could have called for angels to come and save him. He would if he, if he wanted. But because he understood, he knew 
what he was to accomplish. And his mission was to save humanity. A mission that began with a promise in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium about the seed of the woman, now on the cross, reaches its climax, its fulfillment. There, the serpent, yes, bruised the, the heel of the seed of the woman, but there, on that Mount Golgotha, on that place of the skull, the serpent's head was crushed. This is where the story of Christmas really leads us. This is the point of Christmas, brothers and sisters. It's not about gifts giving, gift giving. It's not about the feasting, uh, however good it might be in, the, in family, uh, having, spending time with family. It's about Christ coming into the world and saving sinners. It's about the cross. It's about how Jesus bore our sins. And why, you may ask, why did he do this? Why was it necessary to descend to such a low point, to go to the so low as to die on the cross for our sins? And to this I respond with an illustration. Imagine that you fall into a pit and you're completely helpless from bringing yourself up from the pit and someone wants to help you. How does that person help you? Does that person come and help you at the bottom of that pit when your legs are broken by descending halfway and saying, okay, I've done half of it. Now you, you need to come up at least a little bit and meet me halfway. It's exactly the same thing. It was Christ needed to come and humiliate himself to this point because that's the point where we were. That's the point where we have, were left because of sin. It's the lowest point that he descended because that's the point where we are without Christ. And yet, in some paradoxical way, in some glorious and wondrous way, that honestly, honestly it's, it's the problem with speaking of these matters. It's words fail us. Yet in some glorious way, the lowest point where Christ descended, where the Son of God descended, is the highest point of God's glorious love. It's the peak of his love. You ask how much God loved sinners? You ask how much God so loved sinners? It's in the cross that that is most beautifully seen. If you're his, brother and sister, if you're Christ's, Never doubt his love for you. Because you ask how much does he love you? Look at the cross. That's how much he loved you. Is there greater love than this? Than he giving his life for you? While you were still an enemy and a sinner? To die that death? Not just a, an ordinary death, but death on the cross? All that involved until up, up, up until this point, all of this humiliation, consider it to all together. The, the scorn, the spitting, the, 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 the rejections that he had through all throughout his life, all the humiliation that he faced, the king of glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth, all because of love's sake, all for love's sake. And that's exactly how Paul expresses it, isn't it? He who was rich beyond all splendor. We sing about it. 
All for love's sake he became poor. There's a hymn, and I know hymn is a very fluid uh, category, but it's, it's an old uh, chorus, at least, from the 18th, 17th or 18th century. And some of you might know it as, What a wondrous love is this, O my soul. And I think it beautifully encapsulates this, this reality that it, it was this love that Christ had that led them to forego the crown and to come to a cradle that led to a cross. From the cradle to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory, he received that crown. And that's the, our call. And that's what I would entreat you this, this evening. You see, the, the story of the cross, the mission of our Lord Jesus to save sinners doesn't finish on that cross, does it? He rose again, according to scripture, on the third day. And that being raised from the dead was God the Father putting his stamp of approval on the death that, our, that his son, then the vicarious sacrificial death that his son had performed. And then, having been raised, he went up into the heavens. He was exalted. That's how... Um, Paul expresses, therefore, because of this obedience, this humbling himself in obedience to the point of death, therefore God also has exalted him high. He has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. After humiliation, exaltation. After the cross came the crown. Raised from the dead, he now lives at the right hand of God the Father, restored to the full glory, honor, and privilege that he once knew from the before the foundation of the world. And now, upon us, on the Christmas season, on any season, upon considering these things, there is only one thing that we can and should do. To confess him. To bow our knees to him. And to confess with our tongues that he is Lord over all. The Lord of glory. And it is quite a humbling thing for us. Not for him. In this case, this case is exalting for the God, the Son. But it's a humbling thing for us, isn't it? Because consider what Paul says there. Those in heaven... That is, the saints that departed to glory, the, the, the glorious angels that are obedient to him, they confess him, they bow their knees. There's also those on, on earth that confess him, those that willingly recognize him as Lord, isn't there? There's also those under the earth. There's this idea here, isn't it? Quite clearly expressed that everyone, every tongue, not just those who profess to be Christians, one way or the other, brother and sister, well, one way or the other, my friend, if you're not Christ, 
One way or the other, you will recognize he is Lord. You will confess that he is Lord. It really depends on when you do it. The, the consequences of that really depends on when you do it. But you will do it. There's no doubt about it. You will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is far better to confess him now and go on confessing him throughout our lives and confess him for the rest of eternity than to confess him later, to confess him in eternity in joy and, and bliss in his presence, than to forego confessing him now, forego uh, declaring him Lord of your life now, and then spend an eternity in bitterness, in hell, recognizing him as Lord. But nonetheless, your faith is sealed. Brothers and sisters, my friends, God gives everyone the opportunity this day, here, to confess him as Lord. The opportunity is freely given. Will you do so now with joy, willingly? Will you exalt him as the Lord of all? Will you receive from him the greatest gift ever given? eternal life or will, we, will you reject him if you confess him Romans says Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10 says if you confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved saved from hell saved from an eternity in hell saved from judgment and it's far better to confess him so I plead, confess him as Lord. Receive his salvation now. And you will continue to rejoice and confess him, not only now, but in days to come, even until eternity. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truths concerning our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for these wonderful uh, truths conveyed to us. Lord, and we even thank you for these days, this season that we live in, that gives us the opportunity to pause and to consider these realities. Thank you, Lord, for the hymns that we were able to sing Lord, that are conveyed to us these realities. Thank you, Lord, for, the, for these carols and these tunes. But most importantly, Lord, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of the coming of your Son for us, for sinners like us. I do pray, Lord, that there would be no one, I plead, Lord, there would be no one in this building that would leave this place, Lord, without confessing you, without confessing your Son as their Savior and Lord, without bowing their knee before you. Lord, may you grant to many this day and this season up and down this land to know and to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Grant, Lord, salvation. Grant, Lord, faith and repentance, and grant unto us, Lord, 
as we consider the, the great humiliation, the great humbleness of our Savior. Grant to us, Lord, who have known him as our Savior, to live in light of his humility in our day, in our families, and in our church. We do pray, Lord, these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ.